It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of August 10th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And I think I'm overplaying the part a little bit. Let me explain. I received a message several weeks ago. The message said, and I quote, Dear Beloved, Here writes Laura Kingston, suffering from a cancerous ailment of the brain. I was married to Dr. Perry J. Kingston, an Englishman who is now dead. My husband was into private practice all his life before his death. Our life together as man and wife lasted for three decades without child. My husband died after a protracted illness. My husband and I made a vow to uplift the downtrodden and the less privileged individuals as he had passion for persons who cannot help themselves due to physical disability or financial predicament. I can adduce this to the fact that he needed a child from this relationship, which never came. Well, the message went on and on and on, and eventually it told me that I would receive 12 million pounds sterling. I found the spam and a spam trapper, and I decided to respond to it. Obviously, it was the beginning of one of those Nigerian 419 jobs, but I thought I'd see if I could get any response. So, I became Zacharias Zeke Nugudnik Ye Shall Find. Zeke N. Ye Shall Find. Anyway, I live at 64 West 120th Street. That's in Harlem, New York City. Zip code 10027. Now, the USPS shows that as non-deliverable. I've been in that block, and I'm pretty sure that 64 does not exist. I'm going to tell these folks that I've been at the address, which is just around the corner from the lovely, quiet Marcus Garvey Park, since 1965. I'm also going to tell them I don't own a telephone or a fax because I find them bothersome and noisy intrusions. I will tell them that I retired in 1991 after making a great deal of money as a stockbroker on Wall Street, a few years after a certain rather unfortunate misunderstanding with a brokerage firm that I worked for. That misunderstanding occurred in 1984. I will tell them my father died in 1989, and he had set up a blind trust that controls all the money he left to me. That would be $27,500,000. That trust also controls any money that I would have made on my own, which amounts to $43,221,000, plus a windfall profit in 1984. So the problem is I can't have a bank account that I have any access to. Instead, the executors of my daddy's will pay all of my day-to-day expenses. I'll tell him I was born in Landerzeel, Belgium, on August 4th, 1939. Landerzeel is about 23 kilometers from Brussels. My parents left Belgium, I will say, rather abruptly, and lived for a while in Cuba from 1940 to 1942, then moved to Chicago in 1942 when I was three. Eventually, they became citizens. In 1945, when I was six, they moved to New York City, and I grew up on the Lower East Side. We lived on the top floor of a six-floor walk-up at Avenue B and 4th Street. The building is still there. There's a pizza shop on the first floor. So, that's me. In due course, I responded to Mrs. Kingston, told her I was definitely interested, and of course she was delighted that I would be willing to take this money from her dead husband off her hands, and she directed me to contact her barrister. Someday, these scammer idiots will learn that barristers are high-priced attorneys in the UK. They represent you in court. They do not work with wills and trusts.
Well, in fact, I pretended to be really dumb. I thought that Barrister was some kind of high-class British name and asked if I could call him Barry. Barry didn't seem to mind. He sent me instructions regarding how to start the process of obtaining my 12 million pounds sterling. He asked for information about me, and so I started spinning my story. When the fake barrister, also known as Barry, responded to my message, he managed to misspell my last name. Well, I couldn't let that pass. Was this part of the con, checking to see if I really was Zeke and ye shall find? I don't know. But I did reply to him and let him know that he had gotten my name wrong. Oh, dear Barry, I think we have a problem. You got my name wrong here. It's Zacharias Nugudnik ye shall find. I'm sure that any check written to me with an incorrect last name will be difficult to deal with when it comes to financial institutions. I have some rather unique requirements in that regard. You should probably use my name the way I most commonly spell it. That is Zeke N. Ye shall find. Barry, of course, apologized for getting my name wrong. But then it was time to send me the step one message, the one that makes the process look easy. I should have my 12 million pounds sterling in just a few days. Looks like clear sailing. So I quickly replied to Dr. Smith at the bank to start the process of opening the account that's going to be used to deposit the money. Oh, by the way, only an idiot would fail to recognize that the document provided by Dr. Smith is anything other than a fake. Can you imagine any bank using Comic Sans for its name and providing a document that is poorly formatted? Well, no matter. I filled out the form, and I returned it. Then Dr. Robert Smith set the hook. According to British law, he told me I would need to deposit nearly $1,300 just to open an account. The best way to do that would be to use Western Union or MoneyGram to send the money. So I thought I'd see what I could do. I sent a message back to Dr. Smith, said there's a problem here. I can't gain access to the money my daddy left me when he died in 1989, but I wonder if you or the bank would advance me the money. I'd even be willing to pay you a million pounds, which would still leave me 11 million pounds, and would give Dr. Smith a nice profit for his time. Pretty reasonable, don't you think? Well, of course, the crooks didn't think so. I kept trying to come up with reasons why they should give me a pass, and they kept repeating the same old message, we want your money. So I made up a New York City law firm with offices on the 67th floor of a 41-story building. The firm is operated by three people who are just as imaginary as the floor in their building that their office is not on. But most of the other names on the letterhead are real. The three fakes, Barnabas Q. Blather IV, Horton E. Wheedle Jr., and Doofus M. DeLay III. So the law firm is called Blather, Wheedle, and Delay. On Independence Day, I pleaded for mercy. I wrote, I have heard from Daddy's law firm, and they tell me that I can get the $1,299 required to open the account, but because of federal regulations, something about a penalty for early withdrawal, I need to have $129 in cash. Because of the way Daddy set up my trust fund, it's very hard to get my hands on any cash at all. I have managed to come up with $35.07, and I hope maybe you can help me with the rest. If you can, then I can obtain the funds from Mrs. Laura Kingston and use them to assist the needy here. I think I've scanned a copy of the letter from the attorneys, and I hope that I've managed to attach it to this message. I believe it explains the situation. The letter was from Ima Foolishit, 
and I have managed to attach it to the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Well, it was a holiday weekend in the United States, and I told Dr. Smith that I believe there will be nobody back in the office of the law firm until Monday and hoped that we could work out something before then. Well, I had overplayed the part. Maybe it was that seven cents in addition to the $35 that I'd managed to collect. Maybe that overplayed it just a little, or maybe the whole thing was just played a little too broadly. In any event, Dr. Smith dropped off the planet after that one. So I'm zero for two in dealing with these scammer spammers. I'll try again. When my younger daughter asked me to order some CD blanks for her for use in sending files to her clients, I selected the Rydata brand based in large part on cost. Oddly, it's less expensive to buy many brands of DVD blanks than CD blanks these days. Now, because I was nearly out of CD blanks, I ordered some for me, too. Rydata, made by Rytec, has a decent reputation. I was a bit surprised when the CD blanks arrived in wrappers that indicated they had been manufactured in Vietnam. When it comes to DVDs, the best quality blanks come from Japan. CDs are a good bit less touchy than DVDs. So far, I've burned only a few CDs, but they seem to be just fine. Longevity might be a question, though, but that's not really important for the way I use CDs. I use them to transfer big files from here to there, to send big files to people who don't have fast Internet connections, and things like that. So for CDs, longevity isn't a primary concern. If I want to keep data for more than a few months, I will use a good quality DVD. Ritex website says the company is an ISO-certified company and that it upholds the highest standards for quality management processes. They say you can trust that the Ritex brand of discs are consistently manufactured to the highest quality standards in the world. Okay, they seem fine. Ritex moved its manufacturing equipment for CDR discs from its subsidiaries in Germany and Northern Ireland to its Vietnam subsidiary in 2005. In a news release at the time, Ritech noted that the equipment is valued at $56.7 million. Ritech said that it planned to phase out production in Europe to minimize production costs. As of that time, Ritech had not moved any of its equipment to subsidiaries in China because used equipment cannot be imported into China. Ritech's primary market focus is high-speed DVD plus R and minus R discs and DVD plus R dual-layer discs. If you are like most people, you figure that any time spent waiting on your computer is wasted. Windows in general, and Vista in particular, waste a lot of my time as I wait for the machine to become ready to use. Apple's OS X takes a little less time, particularly if I just have the machine in standby mode. Then it's ready in just a few seconds. But the real winner, if I want to start a machine from scratch, is Linux. One recent evening, I realized that I had started both a Windows computer and a Linux computer at the same time. Both of them were waiting for my password. So I thought we'd run a little impromptu speed test. I entered the passwords and then clicked the continue button simultaneously on both the Windows and the Linux system because they were sitting side by side. The Windows Vista system had an extreme advantage because the computer it's running on has a dual-core CPU running a 2.7 gigahertz and 2 gigabytes of RAM. The machine that has Linux on it is a 1.4 gigahertz single-core machine with just a single gigabyte of RAM. Even worse, Ubuntu Linux is installed within the Windows file system, which causes it to run more slowly than it would have installed in a partition on the disk. 
Well, the Ubuntu machine was ready for use in just 30 seconds. The Windows Vista machine had reached a semi-usable state in about 60 seconds, but there was still a lot of disk activity. The machine was really ready to use only after 3 minutes and 40 seconds. So, what's the point? Well, maybe there isn't one. If you're the kind of person who comes into the office, starts the computer, and then goes off to have breakfast, you're not going to notice much difference. But if you're the kind of person who fires up the computer and would like to start working right away, you might find that Windows delay more than just a little annoying. In nerdly news, maybe no more fab for AMD. No, not the Fab 4. Fab is short for fabrication. It wasn't that many years ago that advanced micro devices described grand plans to open new fabs or plants with ever smaller tolerances to produce ever smaller and more powerful processors. Now it seems that AMD is about to scrap those plants and outsource its manufacturing. Wow, what a change. But there's a reason. The story is in the San Jose Mercury News this week. The story by Mark Boslett notes that AMD's stock has fallen from its 2006 high of more than $40 per share to today's price in the neighborhood of about $4 a share. The company's been working for more than a year on a plan to survive. The plan should be announced by the end of the year, and Boslett says the company has hinted that it will outsource all manufacturing. AMD has lost more than $5 billion in the past seven quarters. The company could put its manufacturing plants in Dresden, Germany on the block. Making things worse is the company's purchase of graphics chipmaker ATI in 2006 at a high price. AMD also has an option to build a plant in New York, but construction never started there. Boslett notes that AMD already has experience with outsourcing. That's because ATI graphics chips are made in Taiwan, and AMD already worked with IBM to develop future chip production technologies. By outsourcing, AMD would have to share profits with another company, but it would also share risks. AMD's manufacturing operations are well-respected as efficient operations, so there is a downside to outsourcing. But this may be the only way to save the company. Would you like to have 3.7 million credit cards? Seems that each of 11 people did. Well, maybe they didn't actually have 3.7 million cards each, but federal prosecutors say the 11 people stole more than 41 million credit card and debit card numbers. One of them could be spending a great deal of time in prison. And maybe now I know what that letter I received last week from American Express was all about. Secret Service Director Mark Sullivan and Attorney General Michael Mukasey jointly announced that charges have been filed against 11 people who obtained the credit card and debit card numbers from companies such as Office Max, Barnes & Noble, BJ's Wholesale Club, the Sports Authority, and TJ Maxx. Charged as the ringleader, Albert Gonzalez of Miami faces charges of computer fraud, wire fraud, aggravated identity theft, conspiracy, and other charges. He could spend the rest of his life in prison if convicted on all counts. Others charged are from Estonia, Belarus, Ukraine, and China. Although they have been indicted, the government doesn't know where they are or how to get them. Prosecutors say that Gonzalez and his friends parked outside stores and scanned wireless networks to find security holes. This is known as war driving. It was one of the stores victimized by the attacks, TJ Maxx, that alerted the government to the problem last year. 
When the crooks found openings in the security systems, they tapped into credit card processing systems, grabbed card numbers and other information stored there. They then sold the credit card numbers online, used the information to fabricate their own cards with appropriate magnetic strips, and then drained bank accounts. Nice guys. This wasn't Gonzalez's first brush with the Secret Service, by the way. He was arrested on similar charges in 2003. But guess what? He was placed on supervised pre-trial release. Supposedly, he became an informant for the government. <laughs> yeah, and he continued his illegal actions. <sighs> Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of August 10th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you'd like, you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.